Somehow, uh, I, I, I appreciate you guys, first of all, just kind of bearing, bearing through the, the long reading of that text, right? It's a long text, ain't it? <laughs> Some of y'all started looking, looking like you're about to fall asleep while you're standing up. But praise God, y'all pressed on through. So that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Um, I, want, I want to answer the question this morning, what does it look like to, to preach the gospel? It's a very simple question. What does gospel preaching look like? What does a gospel preacher look like? Uh, this is when, you know, this is when gospel, again, Paul is on his first missionary journey along with Barnabas, and they are going to areas, and the gospel is hitting areas for the very first time. And so the, the question this morning is, what, is it, what does a gospel preacher look like, and what does gospel preaching look like? You know, is it, is, is, does, it, does it come in a certain package? Is it the tent revivalist? Is it the, is it the, the, the mega church? Is it the mega church pastor? Is it the, you know, is it the televangelist? What, what exactly is gospel preaching and what exactly is a gospel preacher? And I think we can answer that just by looking at this text this morning in Acts chapter 13. Uh, the, first thing, the first thing I want to uh, highlight is that, is that a gospel preacher preaches through difficulty. Gospel preachers preach through difficulty. You see in, uh, in verse 13 and, and in verse uh, 14, even before Paul and Barnabas get to their location, get to their place of preaching, which is Antioch and Pisidia, there is this moment in which they are confronted with difficulty that doesn't really come off the page if you, if you, if you don't know what's happening. It, it's, it doesn't seem like anything difficult is happening. There's, there's two types of difficulty here, though. There's relational difficulty, and then there's logistical difficulty. Relational and logistical. As it relates to relational difficulty, Paul and Barnabas' missionary journey, they've had up to this point a gentleman by the name of John. John Mark, in fact. John Mark is Barnabas' cousin, and they've been together up, up until this point, and all of a sudden we read in this text that John Mark leaves. Verse 13, it says, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, for whatever reason, he decides to opt out of continuing the journey with Paul and Barnabas. It is a reason that appears to be met with Paul's disapproval, because a few years later, when we get to Acts chapter 15, verses 30, uh, verse 36, we, we, we find this point of conflict between Paul and Barnabas, because John Mark wants to come back. And he wants to pick up where he left off and continue the journey with Paul and Barnabas. And Paul says no. Emphatically no. He can't come. And they're, about, they're actually about to make a circle. So they go, so they go, they go through these uh, regions preaching the gospel. People get saved. They get back. John Mark says, hey, can I go, can I go when you guys go back? And they start making the circle back around. And, and Paul says, no, you can't go. You're not going. Barnabas says, hey, he's my cousin. You know, Barnabas is the guy that's always encouraging people, exhorting people. He's a lot more patient. Hey, Paul, give him a chance. He's going to do the right thing this time. Paul says, no, he's not going. And literally, Paul feels so strongly about it that they end up splitting. Barnabas and John Mark go, go their way. Paul goes his way. So apparently, John is leaving for a reason that's not good. We don't know. Like I said, it could be fear of the journey. It could be he's homesick. It could be he just doesn't simply think it's a great idea to take this trip, but he leaves. And so there is difficulty in relationships 
in ministry. But, but we shouldn't be surprised by that, but, but neither should we be surprised by the idea that there is also just logistical difficulties in ministry. What you don't really read when you read this verse in, 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 in this text is that the place that they're going, Antioch and Pisidia, there is a hundred mile stretch, right, that is mountainous, a lot of up and downhill climbs. They're, they're, the historians say that many robbers and raiders would be along these roads up to no good, typically beating people up, taking what they have. And they have to walk this road in order to get to the place that they're trying to share, uh, take the gospel to. But Luke doesn't seem to make a big deal about either of these things, does he? He doesn't make a big deal about the relational um, difficulties that they're experiencing. He doesn't make a big deal about the logistical difficulties that they're experiencing. And so the question is why? Why doesn't he make a big deal about either one of these things? And I believe the answer is this. I believe the answer is that Luke understands that the setbacks that are experienced aren't where the bulk of the focus should be placed for us. The most important thing in the life of the Christian is the mission that the Christian is on. Not the difficulties that we experience while we're on mission. Do you understand that? The most important thing is the mission. The mission is the point. Our lives certainly carry their fair share of difficulties and, 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 and relational difficulties, logistical difficulties along the way, but they should never impede upon our primary purpose in this life, which is to glorify God, enjoy God, and to make him known wherever we go. Does that make sense to you? Relationships can be difficult, and we should not be surprised, even in, even in our missional efforts, when we're taking Jesus to the world, when we're taking Jesus to our neighborhood, we should not be surprised that relationships are difficult along the way, whether they be in your church, whether they be, whether they be outside of your church, in family relationships, or whether they be even in marriages. We shouldn't be surprised when relationships are difficult. But we must press through the difficulty of those relationships. We shouldn't be surprised when our journey is difficult, where there are hardships that impede progress, when there are hardships that lead to our suffering, when there are hardships that lead to all sorts of different things. We shouldn't be surprised when we experience those difficulties, but we must press through those difficulties because mission is the point. Making him known, enjoying him, and glorifying him. That's your purpose. Nothing can thwart that. Nothing can stop that. Luke appears to say, that's why I'm not even spending time with it. Let's go. Does that make sense? And so they go, and they go to, they reach Antioch, despite the difficulties of relational difficulties and logistical difficulties. They reach Antioch and Pisidia, and, and Paul is there to preach in the synagogues. How does Paul get the opportunity to preach in the synagogue is the first question. Well, it appears that the reputation that Paul and Barnabas carry throughout the land has reached this location that they have entered. Possibly people have heard of Paul because of his connection to one of the great Jewish teachers of the day. He was well-respected, well-renowned, and he was taught by a, a, a very well-respected and well-renowned Jewish teacher. And so maybe in this moment, Paul gets the opportunity to speak because they know him and they know his pedigree at least his academic pedigree, his uh, rabionic, rabionic pedigree. 
But Paul appears to leverage this opportunity to share the gospel. They give him an opportunity, and he takes it by sharing the gospel. And the question I have for you is how many of those opportunities do you leverage? When somebody gives you an opportunity, it says, where's your joy come from? Somebody gives you an opportunity, says, where's your peace come from throughout all this chaos and, 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 and craziness going on in your life? When somebody gives you an opportunity and says, hey, how do, you, how do you treat so-and-so so well on the job even though they keep coming back at you with so many, so many vicious attacks? How do, you keep, how do you keep responding so lovingly to them? How, would you, how are you leveraging, leveraging those opportunities to make Jesus Christ known? Paul takes his opportunity in the Jewish synagogue to make his Savior known. They say, hey, can you speak with us a little bit? Offer us some words of encouragement? He said, I'd be delighted to. He starts telling them about Jesus Christ. Now, one of the other things that we need to uh, think about in this message that Paul preaches is that he is preaching a message, but he is preaching a message within a context. So he's sharing the gospel, but he's contextualizing the gospel. In other words, he's thinking about the audience in which he's sharing the gospel with, and he shares the gospel in in a way that's tailored to the audience. One of the most important lessons that you can learn and that I can learn about sharing the gospel with our neighbors is that in order to do so effectively, we must obviously have the power of the Spirit at work in our lives, and we must obviously be studying and knowing the gospel that we proclaim, but also we must spend time trying to know our neighbor. We must spend a little time trying to actually know the neighbor in which we're sharing the gospel with. Paul's message is always the same. It's always the same. Christ crucified. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He was perfect and spotless without sin and was crucified in order to serve as the the perfect spotless sacrifice for the world. He rose from the grave as promised and as a demonstration of his power over sin and over death and all of those who turn in faith and uh, and turn in faith towards him trusting him as lord and savior and turning from the old ways turning from their life of sin and turning from their life of death shall actually receive life and be saved by him that message never changes for paul but the approach often does the way he preaches that message changes often. The way Paul shares the gospel, for example, in chapter 13, is not the way that Paul shares the gospel with a group of Greek philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. He's dealing with a group of Jewish synagogue believers in Acts chapter 13. He's dealing with a group of Greek philosophers who believe in many gods or no God and have no regards for the Jewish God. In Acts chapter 17. So he preaches in a different way to those different audiences. The way that Paul reminds a group of elders, a group of pastors to look to Jesus in Acts chapter chapter 20 is not the same way that he points a Roman governor to Jesus in Acts chapter 24, the governor being Felix. It's the same gospel message, but it's a different approach. And so effective missionaries, which we all desire and aspire to be, should understand the gospel, should pray and seek the help of the Spirit to share the gospel, but we should also seek to understand our neighbor well enough to understand how the gospel speaks to our neighbor's core concerns and core conflicts. That's what you call contextualization. In a a talk that a gentleman by the name of 
Steve Timmis uh, gives, and this talk is called How to Plan a Church. Steve Timmis says this about contextualization. Listen to this. In every situation, there needs to be a point of contact with the people. In other words, understand their values, their history, and their communication style. And a point of conflict that reveals how their own narrative conflicts with that of the gospel. There needs to be a point of relation, point of contact with the people that you can relate to the people. And you can use the gospel to relate to the people. But there also has to be points of contention and conflict where you show that their story, how their story runs counter to Jesus. And how, they, and how repentance turns them from their story and what they trust in to the God of the Bible. Some of us want to share the gospel with a 19-year-old black Fortnite playing college student the same way we share the gospel with a 55-year-old white plumber who watches CNN. And it's not the same. The message is the same, but the approach is different. You have to understand that in order to be effective. Paul understands that. Paul understands that. So Paul begins his message and he says, so, so verse 16, so Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. And, I'm sorry, and you who fear God, listen. Paul begins first by acknowledging the people in the room. They are all Ju Ju um, Judaizers, or, or rather they are all, Ju they profess the Ju Judaic faith. Some of them are native in their profession. They're born Jews. Others are Gentiles who have embraced the God of the Jews. And so the men of Israel are the native-born Jews. But those that fear God are the Gentiles who have embraced the Jewish God. Does that make sense? He addresses both audiences, and he says, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and uplifted, and with an uplifted arm he led them out of it. And so he speaks to these native Jewish people. He speaks to these people that are Gentiles who have come along and embraced this Jewish God. And he says, initially, God chose you as a people. Verse 17. He says, God increased you while in Egypt. Verse 17. He says, God delivered you from Egypt. Verse 17. Then he goes into verse 18 and he says, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. God bear with you. While you murmured and complained and looked to idols. In verse 18. Verse 19 it says, And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. God prospered you. And he says that, verse 20, all this took about 450 years. 450 years you saw God's faithfulness on display, and it continued. And then he goes into verse 21, and he says, I'm sorry, verse 20, he says, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet, God governed you. Verse 21, it says, and, and then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. So God governed you, and yet that wasn't enough. You said, we need a king. God still remaining faithful. He brought you out of Egypt. That wasn't enough. You said, hey, where's our food? He gave you food. You said, well, I don't know about this food. He took you to Canaan. What did you do? Find a way to turn your back on him yet again. 
and yet he remains faithful. Verse 21, it says, They asked for a king. God gave them Saul, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. And of this man's offspring, God brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now notice what happens. God governs them. They say, your governance isn't enough. We need a king. God says, you don't really want this king. They say, yes, we do. So God gives them Saul. Sure enough, Saul's not the guy they really want. Right? So it's like, God's still merciful. And so he sends them another king. A king with his heart, David. God didn't have to do that. God could have said, told you, and been done with it, story over. But God, merciful, sovereign, faithful, sends them a good king, a king after his own heart. And then through that king, prepares the way for the king, Jesus Christ. Verse 24, it says, before his coming, John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And so God, in his faithfulness, governs them. They say, we don't want your governance. He prepares the way for a king, even through their own sinful kings. And then John, John the Baptist prepares the way for this king's arrival, the one who was promised to them. Through it all, God was faithful. Through their sin, God was faithful. Through their rebellion, God was faithful. Through their idolatry, God was faithful. Through their complaining about his provision, God was faithful. When you asked for other, when you asked for other gods, I didn't abandon you. When you asked for another king, I didn't abandon you. When you asked for another way, I didn't abandon you. I stayed with you. Paul is highlighting the faithfulness of God through it all. Now let's think about how to contextualize that in your day and time, in your culture, around your neighbors and, and those people that you know. This particular section might not resonate with anybody that you know. They might read this and say, okay, I mean, David, all right, got it. Sam, who's Samuel? Right? But how can you possibly contextualize this? Of course, you want to teach them even the Old Testament as well. But how in the moment can you point people back to Jesus? You can do it the same way Paul did this audience. You can point to the faithfulness of God. For the one who says, that, for, for the one who says what has God done for me, you can turn their attention and their, and their, and their, and their focus to God's faithfulness. Possibly at an individual level, you can just talk about, hey, man, look at God's faithfulness to you through the years, how he's kept you alive, how he's kept you breathing. Maybe you can talk about faithfulness at, at a corporate level, as, at a group level. That's one, of the, that's one of the historic realities of the African-American church. One of the ways that, one of the, ways that the Lord used the, the testimony of the African-American church through the, through the hardships of, of slavery and, rec, uh, and, 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 and Reconstruction, Jim Crow, was that he used the African-American church to testify to the faithfulness of God carrying a people through those burdens and hardships. Are you tracking with that? And so maybe you can speak to someone about God's faithfulness at an individual level. Maybe you can speak to someone about God's faithfulness at a corporate level. 
And then you can use that as a what? As a springboard to Jesus. You can say that faithfulness was meant to point you to someone. That faithfulness was meant to, to, to send your attention somewhere. That's what Paul does. He says, hey, God has been keeping you all of this time. And guess what? This keeping was, was, all a culminate, was all culminated upon this promise of a Savior to come. And that Savior has come, and that Savior is Jesus. Jesus Christ. So it's not just faithfulness for faithfulness sake, it's faithfulness meant to lead us somewhere. And then he begins to talk about that Savior in verse 26. He says, brothers, son of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. Fulfilled them by condemning him. Notice again, Paul addresses the group. He uses the title for the two groups in in his audience. He says, those among you who fear God, those are the Gentiles who have embraced the Jewish God. But then he says what? Again, sons of the family of Abraham. Those are the native-born Jewish people. So he's addressing the group again. He says, to us has been sent the message of salvation. The person who is talking to you right now has the message of salvation. That's what Paul is saying. The prophets pointed to this Savior. And every week we gather and we read what? The law and the prophets. That's, he's in the synagogue, right? And every week they read the law. And every week they read the prophets. Paul is saying... Basically this, you read about this Savior every single week, and yet he is coming, you've rejected him. Every week you get up and you read from the prophets, and the prophets have been talking about him all along, and now he has showed up and you've rejected him. Paul is saying, this is how bad our betrayal is. That every single week we get clues about Jesus. Every single week you get a shadow about Jesus in your synagogue. And yet he arrives and you kill him. But not just Jerusalem, right? Not just the Jewish people. Same thing happens to all of us, right? That's Paul's point in Romans chapter 1 where he says that that For what can be known about God is plain to them in verse 19 of chapter 1. Because God has shown it to them. He's talking about everybody. He says, what can be known about God? When you go out and you breathe his air, and you look to the sky and you see his clouds, or you drive drive through the hills of Vicksburg and you see the contours in which he's created, you look at this massive Mississippi River, or maybe you drive down to the coast of Biloxi and you look out as far as the eye can see and see nothing but water. You know he's there. You see the evidence. And so to reject him is betrayal. It's to look at all of this, to look at all of this and say, ah, you know, I'm going to do my own thing. It's the same type of betrayal as sitting in a synagogue week after week and hearing the prophets read over and over and over again. And then when the one that the prophets was talking about shows up, you say, we don't want him. 
And yet God's faithfulness shines through by resurrecting this Jesus, right? Resurrecting this Jesus. God's faithfulness shines through by resurrecting this Jesus from the grave despite man's sinfulness that led to the grave. You look at verse 30 and it says, verse, verse 30 of, of chapter 13, it says this. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. In this work of resurrection, we see God's faithfulness to us. But in this work of resurrection, we see God's sovereignty in dealing with us. We see God's mercy at work for us. Because think about it. In the resurrection, God uses the greatest display of man's sin, and it becomes the greatest means, or it becomes the means by which God chooses to save man. He uses the greatest betrayal in all of humankind, and he leverages that betrayal for the salvation of humankind. And so we see his sovereignty clearly at work in this resurrection. We see the faithfulness that was, that the same faithfulness that began with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we see that faithfulness continued all the way through to this point in time that Paul is speaking from. And then Paul makes two, two um, points, or he articulates two defenses to help people grab a hold of the resurrection. The first defense he uses is a factual defense. He says in verse 30 through 32, uh, as we just read, but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses, now his witnesses to the people. He says, hey, this wasn't just a resurrection that nobody witnessed. This wasn't just a resurrection that nobody saw. You got people that are around here that you can ask them. So he bases his evidence for the resurrection in facts. But then he also bases his, re uh, his, his evidence for the resurrection in prophetic promises. When you look at verse 33, for example, he says, This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. He says that's talking about Jesus. In verse 34, he says, And as for the fact that he raised them from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Verse 35, therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. And then he says this, listen. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And so this is what Paul says to the, to the Jewish believers in the synagogue. He says, listen, David is your greatest king, the one that you know, the one that you hold in the highest regard. But David died. The one I speak of was the one that David was pointing to. And that king did not die. That king did not see corruption. The promise wasn't for David because David saw corruption. David died. David went to the grave. But the one that I'm speaking of came out of the grave. He did not see corruption. He is the king that you've been waiting on. He's the king 
that you've been looking for. And then he says this in verse 38. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Folks, every gospel proclamation deserves a gospel appeal. Every gospel proclamation deserves someone to say, repent and believe the gospel. The one that you've been waiting on is here. The one that you need is here. The one who can take away your sin is here. Notice what, notice what Paul says in verse 38. He says, if you accept him, what comes to you? If you accept him, forgiveness of sin comes to you. The release of your burdens, the burdens that are going to take you to hell, have been, have been laid upon the shoulders in the back of Jesus Christ. Accept him and that burden will be no more. But then he says this in verse 39, and by him, everyone who believes is free from everything which you could not be free by the law of Moses. So not only is forgiveness from sin given to you if you accept Jesus, but freedom from performance is given to you if you accept Jesus. Some of you guys have been self-saving yourself all of your life, telling yourself if I could do enough, I could earn his approval. Paul says, no, 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 no. In Christ, forgiveness of sin comes, but in Christ's acceptance comes, regardless of, your, uh, regardless of your performance. Freedom from performing comes in Christ. But then he says in verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if no one tells it to you. So he says, reject it, and what do you face? You face judgment. Reject this offer that Christ has provided. Reject this offer that God the Father has provided through his Son, and there is no other offer for you. What's the response? What do you see? How do they respond to this gospel message after this preaching? The Bible records two reactions, embrace and rejection. It's very simple. Some people embrace it. Some people reject it. Look at the people that embrace it in verses 42 through 44. It says, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them, told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Notice the three actions that come with this embrace. They beg to hear more. See, Paul and Barnabas are leaving and people are begging them to hear more. See, when the gospel is pro properly contextualized and shared fully and in a way that reflects how Jesus meets all of our greatest needs while saving us from all of our greatest failures and sins, and when folks by the Spirit truly embrace that message, you will no longer have to chase them down to get a hearing. They will ultimately come looking for you to get a hearing. That is the evidence that the Spirit has awakened the soul to see Christ for who he really is. As people come to realize their greatest needs are found in Jesus, those needs being salvation, hope, forgiveness, deliverance from the bondage of sin, freedom from performance, and eternal life. 
And as they come to fully understand the, the full depth of their guilt before God as a result of their own sin, they will chase you to hear the message. You will not have to chase them with the message. They followed Paul and Barnabas. They begged them to come back, and then they followed them after they left. Couldn't even wait till next Sabbath. Said, can, let, let, can I just hang out with you and you just talk to me a little bit about this? These people not only, not only were, were looking for the message to come next week, but they were like, no, 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 I want to I just shadow you. I want to hang out with you. I want you to teach me. It's called discipleship. See, you don't have to force discipleship when the heart has been genuinely awakened to the gospel. See, one of the reasons why we got to force discipleship is because, because the heart is awakened to everything but the gospel in our culture. Church is culture now. We don't see as much awakening happening in church. We see culture happening in church. Well, I went to church. It's a good thing to do to kind of, you know, now that, now, that, now that I'm selling down, getting older, hey, let's go to church now. But awakening hasn't happened. That's why it's still dull. But when awakening happens, you don't have to chase somebody with the gospel. When awakening happens, you don't have to chase somebody for discipleship. They want it. They're looking for it. Because their hearts have been awakened to see Christ for who he really is. Folks that have really embraced the gospel don't really have to be sought after. They instead will do the seeking. They look to listen. They look to learn. They look to be disciple because what they hear in the gospel is the very message that all of their life now hinges on. And so they want to be around it. The truth of Jesus Christ as Savior of the world and as your Savior should automatically create some reordering in your life. And it does create real reordering in your life. Now, the last action may not be as visible, but they, they, when they accept embrace, and embrace the gospel, we see them beg to hear more. We see them follow Paul, Paul and Barnabas. But what else do they do? Verse 42 gives us a hint. See, verse 42 says that by the time, I'm sorry, verse 44 says that by the time they come back, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city had gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So what happened? They shared it. They shared it. They shared it. The people that left in verse 42 and the people that went and followed Paul and Barnabas in verse 43, they shared the gospel with their community, which brought everybody back the next Sabbath. The whole city now is back because they're like, man, you got to hear this message that is going to change your life. You have to hear this message that is going to save your soul, that is going to free you from performance, that is going to save you from, the, from sin and the yoke of bondage. You got to hear this message. When the gospel is embraced, it is shared. Let me ask you a question. If I told you that a month ago, out, you know, outside, the, outside of this, these walls, that there was an endless pot of gold outside of these doors that was available to anyone who wanted to just grab a handful and just reach in and, and take some. It was an endless pot. You could just go in and just get some more, and then you can leave and come back and you get some more, and you, you can leave and come back and get some more and leave and come back. And it was there for you, anybody, anybody who wanted to take it. You know, you, it was a, a month ago, man, it was just filled to the brim, and it kept filling back up. Every time I would take some, it kept filling back up. And, and, and I told you that, 
He was like, oh, where is it, bro? Where, where is it? And I was like, oh, man, it was, it was only open for 30 days. It's gone now, you know. It's gone. Sorry. Sorry, man. I, I, forgot, I forgot about you. What would you think about me? What would you think about me? Would you think, what, what, what would you think about, what would you think about me? What would you think about my priority in terms of how, in terms of, you, apparently I don't really care that much about you if I lose nothing in sharing endless riches with you. I lose nothing in sharing them with you. It's endless. I could get some, you can get some, everybody can get it. I just chose not to share it because, you know, you know, sorry man, I just forgot. Or sorry, man, you were busy, you know. And yet, most of us, all of us, at one time or another, are sitting on the eternal riches of the gospel, never sharing the gospel with the world around us, very rarely sharing the gospel with the world around us, even though it costs us nothing to share. We lose nothing. We lose nothing, but the reason that we don't share is because our fear in sharing the message is realer than the riches that we've been called to share. That's why we don't share, because the fear is realer than the actual, than the actual riches in the message, right? So we have to contend with that, don't we? We have to wrestle with the reality of, the reality of have I embraced the gospel? Do I, do I see Jesus for who he really is? Have I lost? That, that, that fire in me, right? That fire, that, that fire of first salvation when I was first saved. And, and man, I was just sharing the gospel with everybody. Why? Because the embrace was real. And then over time, you know, it kind of dim, dampens. The light goes dim. Over time, the light goes dim. And so the question I have to ask is, has the light dimmed so much now? that I treat it like it's no longer really even relevant or treat it like it's no longer real. Lastly, we see a group embrace the message, but then we see a group reject the message. This is what happened when gospel preaching comes. Some people embrace, some people reject. Verse 45, it says this, it says, and when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. See, sometimes the opposition you receive from the gospel will be fierce and active. But notice the root of that opposition, jealousy. The root of the opposition was jealousy. We talked about it last week. Sometimes unbelief manifests itself in different ways. Sometimes it has nothing to do with the intellectual facts about Jesus. Sometimes Jesus simply is seen as a threat to my power, to my control, to my position, to my privilege, to my comfort, to me getting my way, whatever it happens to be, to my idols, Jesus is a threat. And so, yeah, I get all of that. I'm not even necessarily knocking the fact that he might have existed, not even knocking the fact that he might have raised from the grave even, but I don't want to hear about him. And this is what you see in the Jewish opposition here. Jealousy is at the heart of their opposition. And notice that the jealousy, that jealousy creates a fierce opposition. Reviling means to angrily attack. 
to angrily criticize and, and to contradict the words that Paul was bringing. See, the, the gospel should create some reordering in your life, as I mentioned earlier. But if your love, if the love of your life is so significant, the love for your sin, the love for your idolatry, the love for worship of other things or the worship of self, if that love is so, if that love is too significant, then you will meet that reordering with anger. It will feel like a personal attack to you when people are sharing the gospel. Because what's, at, what, what's being threatened is my way of life. What's being threatened is my idol. What's being threatened is the thing that I hold most precious to me. It's like somebody's attacking my sons. And so I lash out. Those are the immediate responses that we hear. It's just lashing out. What does Paul and Barnabas do? This is what gospel preachers do. This is what missionaries do. Verse 46, it says, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside. Judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For, the Lord, for so the Lord has commanded, to us, commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. What do they do? Okay, you guys don't want it. We'll just go on. You guys don't want it, right? Not going to take it as a personal attack? Is that, you, you tracking with that? You know how sometimes we take people rejecting the gospel as personal attacks? You see Paul, you see Barnabas taking this as a personal attack? Listen to the words that they use. Since you have thrust it aside and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, since you've decided that you don't want to live forever, right? <laughs> since, since you decided that you don't want to live forever, we'll just go and talk to somebody else. We'll go and talk to the Gentiles. You want to reject it, that's fine. Not a personal attack. They just continue to move on. They realize what's, they realize what's happening when the gospel is shared. They realize when the idols are touched, how people lash out. And so they don't see it as a personal attack. And they continue on, and it says in verse 48, I'm sorry, verse 49, and the word of the Lord was, I'm sorry, verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And so they don't create personal, they don't, don't, they don't make it about them. They just continue on in the mission that God has called them to, which is to share the gospel unapologetically, relentlessly, persistently, and what happens? God saves. Not them, right? Not, 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 not them. They're not doing the saving. The Bible literally tells us, and when the Gentiles heard this message that these Jewish believers or the Jewish uh, synagogue gatherers rejected, it says that they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. God did the work. God appointed men and women to eternal life. The Spirit did the work and turned the hearts of those in which Paul and Barnabas were preaching to. And so they trusted God with the work. They just cast seed and went to sleep. You know what I mean? 
And that's, that's, the missionary, that's the missionary mindset that we have to adopt, right? And we, if, we take all of, if we take our sharing of the gospel as personal attacks, then it, dampen, then, then it damp, dimmers our light. It dims our light. This is God's work. This is God's message. I want to share it with you, and I want to be, I want to be, I want to be studious in how I share it with you, and I want to think through how, it's, how it needs to be shared with you. But then when I share it, and I share it with love, and I share it with compassion, and I share it with grace, and I share it with mercy, when I share it, I share it. If you, if you choose to reject it, you choose to reject it. But I'm going to continue to pray for you that you would embrace it, and I'll always be available when, uh, in order to continue to hopefully just chip away at this, but I'm not going to get personal about it. Does that make sense? Because there's other souls to be won for Jesus. There's people that will hear even if you don't. And when you adopt that as the method to go about sharing the gospel, then what you see is souls are saved. Opposition continues. The Bible says that even though the word was spreading throughout the region, guess what happens in verse 50? Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city to stir persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Opposition continues. It's part of, part of the way of the gospel. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Even if the leaders of your community gather to tell you to hush, don't be shocked by that. You see that it happens. You're reading about it. Does that make sense? What do they do? What do they do in response to that? Verse 54, 51, I'm sorry. They shook off the dust from their feet. Shook off, the dust of their, uh, shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You reject, it's your business. We're going on, sharing the gospel with those who will listen. And if they don't listen, we will continue on. And guess what happens? Verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Spirit. The opposition did not rob them of joy because they understood who was ultimately responsible for the rejection and the receiving. They knew it wasn't on them. The only thing that was on them was to share. The only thing that was on them was to prepare to be witnesses and to go and be those witnesses. The rest of it, you reject, it's on you. Even embracing, it's on God, right? So this is what it means to go in to, to preach the gospel. This is what it means to be, you know, a, a gospel preacher, but this is what it means to also preach the gospel. It means to go with a message that is contextualized for your group, for the people that you are sharing with, a message that testifies to God's faithfulness, a message that points people to Jesus Christ as the savior of the world, a message that calls people to respond in faith and repentance, and a message that is not taken personal, a message that is full, or, or a messenger that is fully aware that this is God's work, not mine. So the only thing I can do is share.